Welcome to Pullback, the podcast where we challenge ourselves to try something new in ethical consumption. Then we tell you what we learn, fuck-ups and all. I'm Kristen Pugh, and I'm here with Kyla Hewson. Hello. We are really excited to be recording part two of our series on forced labor. In part one, we talked about what forced labor is, how it works, where it happens, and what causes it. So for part two, we're going to talk a little bit more specifically about forced labor and global supply chains. We'll look at what are the risk points of forced labor and discuss what consumers should do about it. And then we'll also talk about our challenges for the week, which uh, not going to be as lighthearted as some of our other challenges. No, I mean, it's one of those things where we went into this and I was like, normally we just kind of pick our own challenges. And I was like, cool, um, how do I how do I do a challenge on forced labor? And I was like, well, I just won't buy stuff that has forced labor in it. And then, um, so right <laughs> at the top of my notes, I, I wrote, what the fuck? It's in everything. <laughs> Thank you to the U.S. Department of Labor for their list on uh, <laughs> things you can find that have forced labor. And I was like, oh, okay. So in order to do this challenge, I must stop consuming for a week, basically. Yeah. Which, I mean, that's not a bad thing. But holy shit. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, that's a little overwhelming. So what we decided to do with the challenge instead was to take a specific good from the list and uh, basically look into how forced labor happens and how you might sort of work towards addressing that. So at the end of the episode, we will talk about that. And hopefully you'll understand why we chose that challenge. Or maybe you won't. It'll just be random. <laughs> Um, As Kyla mentioned, the U.S. Department of Labor produces a list of goods that um, are produced using child labor or forced labor. Uh, The most recent report is for 2018. And the first thing that I noticed when I was reading this was, holy fuck, this covers basically anything I could ever intend on purchasing. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Yes. Yeah, that was what I thought. I looked at it and I was like, how... Am I going to do this challenge? <laughs> Which I'm glad that's that we decided not to, to do a, our challenge differently. But yes, it's so extensive. Yes. I've actually, um, I don't know if you found this, but they have an app as well. So I'm just going to open the app and like randomly scroll through and read a few things for people just so they can get a sense. It's called the uh, Sweat and Toil app if you're interested in downloading it. It's not like, it basically is just an app version of the list. But yeah, so they've got things like, um, artificial flowers, baked goods, bamboo, bananas, beans, beef, blueberries, bovines. That's just like the A slash B section. It's <laughs> It goes through pretty much everything. Uh, raw materials, cons- finished consumer goods, like there's forced labor in pretty much everything. And from the first part of the episode, hopefully you should now sort of understand why forced labor happens and why it's so difficult to keep track of. But what we want to do with this episode is to talk about, like, you as a consumer, how do you engage with forced labor and how can you sort of prevent that if it's even possible? So forced labor can appear in any industry and it can affect supply chains or direct operations of companies of a whole bunch of different sizes. So it's not just the really big companies that are like global companies that are at risk of forced labor. Even small companies can deal with forced labor in their supply chains. And oftentimes they have sort of the fewest tools in their toolkit to address it. 
Even though forced labor is something that happens in every industry, there are a few products that are sort of identified as being in higher risk categories. So the Walk Free Foundation lists five of them. Uh, the first category is laptops, mobile phones, and computers. <laughs> so those things that we use every day, all the time. <laughs> For everything we do, yeah. <laughs> Uh, garments. So, I mean, that'll be no surprise from the fast fashion episode. The garment industry is sort of a wasteland for labor rights. Fish. Again, <laughs> the seafood episode, we learned a lot about why we've got fewer fish in the ocean. So people are going on longer fishing voyages. And that's where a lot of the vulnerability comes in for that. And then the last two are cocoa and sugarcane. So forced labor is not certainly not limited to those five areas, but those are sort of the five that have been identified as being the highest risk commodity categories for forced labor. Forced labor is also a really big problem. Every year, more than $34 billion in goods are imported to Canada at high, that are at high risk of having been produced by child or forced labor. And that affects more than 1,200 companies in Canada. So that's just in one country that's I mean, relatively speaking, Canada has less forced labor happening within our borders. But when you, you think about how like really globalized production works, even companies here have huge challenges in making sure that their products don't have forced labor in it. So if, if you're interested in some global figures, you can go to the Global Slavery Index. It has some good information there. But just to note that workers are particularly vulnerable to forced labor when they're in the lower tiers of global supply chains. So um, oftentimes you'll see forced labor in things like extracting raw inputs. So agriculture or, you know, fishing, that's often mining, those kinds of things. And then uh, the sort of the step where you're processing them and uh, assembling. And that has to do with just the like the the things that make people more vulnerable to forced labor tend to be um, more acute in these kinds of industries. While forced labor is a really complicated challenge, it is possible for companies to monitor their supply chains to reduce the risks. And so I think that's, that's something that's really important to note as consumers. That, yeah, we can get overwhelmed by how big the problem of forced labor is, but that's not an excuse for inaction, you know? Uh, companies can do a good job, and some of them are doing a lot better than others. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's a lot of resources to run audits, but maybe it's worth it to get slavery out of your supply chain? Yeah, <laughs> especially when you're talking about how high consequence forced labor is for the individuals affected by it. Yeah, and when you think about, like, a lot of the companies that are most affected are the ones with the biggest budgets to be doing the audits for these, right? Like, the richest companies are the ones that care the least, it seems. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So there are, there are a few different things that companies can do to prevent forced labor in their supply chains. At sort of a very basic level, having policies and knowing where in their supply chain there might be risks of forced labor are sort of good steps. Then there is a bunch of stuff around sort of like what are the relationships that these companies have with their suppliers? Um, do they have supplier codes of conduct? How robust are they? Do they carry out due diligence to make sure those codes of conduct are being sort of carried out. Um, they can also train their staff to recognize forced labor and really make sure that they're sort of updating their policies um, as they go. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that companies can do. And as Kyla mentioned, it is just, it's resource intensive. And in a lot of cases, you're, you're gonna, 
you might be able to get a lot of the forced labor out of your supply chain doing that, but it's not it's not perfect because a lot of the times these are sort of hidden mechanisms. So noting that companies can do better or worse at addressing forced labor, what should you as a consumer do about it? I've got a couple of different strategies that we'll sort of highlight. Um, I would recommend sort of taking on multiple of these steps at the same time because none of them individually will solve the problem. But the first one that you can try is picking big brands that are leaders on getting forced labor out of their supply chains. So you can try to look for brands that are taking action to address forced labor in their supply chains, uh, but know that these leading brands have not eliminated forced labor. None of them have. Oh, okay. Never mind then. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I will talk about a few tools, but I just want to highlight an example of that. So in 2019, the United Kingdom actually broke up the largest modern slavery operation in their country's history. So it was this massive raid. They found 400 Polish trafficked workers and uh, sort of brought them out of forced labor. Some of the victims in that case were employed by second-tier suppliers at major supermarket and building chains in the UK, and that included Tesco and Sainsbury's. And what's notable about that is that those were actually the two companies that were picked as the leading companies in Oxfam's supermarket scorecards in terms of like protecting human rights. So those are the two companies that were doing the absolute best according to Oxfam's ranking and still they ended up being complicit in this human trafficking ring basically and those kinds of things because enforcement for forced labor is so low i think you just have to assume that that's happening in some cases so just to highlight that it's not a perfect strategy to deal with the big leading brands but it is it is better than going with the brands that are doing nothing (laughs) i guess yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's the thing, right? Like, everything is subcontracted and then subcontracted again. So it's so it's so hard to it's so hard to reach the bottom sometimes. Yeah, a couple of tools that you might want to use if you are going to try to go for brands that are tackling forced labor to the extent that they can. The first one is the Stop Slavery Award. And it is an award that recognizes companies that have strong policies and processes to limit the risk of slavery in their supply chains and operations, Um, and also to reward those that are acting as key agents in the fight against slavery. So it's not just the brands. Sometimes they also recognize like NGOs. Is Lush on the list? Um, No, um, Lush, this isn't like a ranking. It's um, they recognize like two to three brands and Lush was not one of the brands they recognized. Some of the ones that they have recognized in the past include Apple, Unilever, Adidas, Intel, and Co-op. Oh, good. I mean, those are the ones that are most likely to have forced labor in their supply chains, right? So, Yeah, absolutely. They're all sort of producing things that are at relatively high risk of involving forced labor. You can also look, we've mentioned this in our, our very first episode of Pullback, actually, but Know the Chain has a bunch of benchmarking reports. And essentially, it looks at how good major brands in a few different industries are doing at addressing forced labor. So if you're looking for something in apparel and footwear, food and beverage, or information and communications technologies like electronics, then you can go to Know the Chain and 
look for the brands that are doing the best on their rankings. You can also, if there's a brand you love that's not doing well on the rankings, we always recommend that people sort of use their voice. Uh, let your com- the company that you're, you would usually buy from know that forced labor is something that matters to you and you think they need to do better. A second strategy that you can try is fair trade. So to the extent that there are fair trade labels available, I know they're, they're not available for every product and sometimes they can be hard to find. But where you can find fair trade labels, they can provide a good alternative that is likely to be free from forced labor. We've talked about fair trade in the podcast a few times, but essentially it's a set of movements, campaigns, and initiatives that emerged in response to the negative effects of globalization. So not only the issue of unfree labor, but also like poor labor pay, unsafe working conditions, that kind of thing. If you buy a product that is certified as fair trade, that means it has met standards on pay, working conditions, and sometimes other social and environmental criteria. If you're looking for more information on fair trade, our research note from the sugar episode has a little bit more, but there are fair trade certified and fair trade member organizations, and those sort of have different processes behind them. So it's worth sort of looking into that. And I think we've mentioned before that we were thinking about maybe doing an episode on fair trade anyways, because I feel like there's a lot to talk about there, maybe. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I don't want to go into it too much for this episode. There are some critiques of fair trade, though. Um, the critique tends not to be that fair trade is doing a bad job of checking on worker conditions in a particular situation. Um, usually, if something is fair trade, the the producers are getting paid the amount that fair trade says they're getting paid. Um, but there are critiques that basically fair trade doesn't really address the root causes of the problem. And then there are also some critiques around sort of particular aspects of um, fair trade because it um, fair trade's really in favor of like worker co-ops and there's some debate around that. But fair trade generally is a pretty robust standard. We'll maybe do a full episode on them. Uh, Worth checking it out if you're worried. (laughs) There you go, a teaser for a future episode. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, Kyla, I think you had mentioned this at the top, but another option that sort of instinctively comes to mind is trying to avoid buying products that are at high risk of forced labor. But I wouldn't recommend that one (laughs) Uh, for two reasons. The first one's one that you said, which is that it's basically impossible. There's forced labor in everything. But the second one is that it can be potentially counterproductive, right? If you're not buying, I mean, I'll give conflict minerals as an example. We should maybe do a full episode on that one too. (laughs) (laughs) But to, to use the example of conflict minerals, let's say you don't want to buy anything that has rare earth minerals in it, right? Um, So like that coltan, the tantalum, uh, various other things that are sort of at high risk of being mined under conflict circumstances using forced labor in regions of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. You're like, I'm not about that. Conflict minerals bad. But if you boycott all conflict, like all conflict minerals from, or all minerals from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, That means you're also boycotting non-conflict minerals from that region, right? It can pose a really big development challenge. And in a lot of ways, taking that sort of boycott approach can result in um, 
really just biasing trade in favor of developed countries. So that's not necessarily a good thing, particularly when these kinds of, if you could really target the boycott so you knew you were only boycotting actually conflict minerals or whatever the product is you're dealing with, then that might be a good thing. But usually you can't because these things are so complicated. And you're just never, you're never going to know what's a conflict mineral and what has been mined appropriately. Is that basically the problem? Yeah, in a lot of cases. And out of an abundance of caution, if companies think that that's what you want, they'll just not source from that country, you know, because it's simpler than doing the actual due diligence to make sure that you're sourcing conflict-free coltan from like the eastern Kivu region of of Congo, right? It's a lot harder than just saying like, fuck it, I'm getting all my coltan from Australia or whatever, you know? Uh, <laughs> anyway, so boycott isn't necessarily the best approach for both of those reasons. I watched an interesting TED talk um, in preparation for this episode. It was by a foreign affairs producer at PBS NewsHour called PJ Tobia. And the the argument that he makes is essentially that if you're trying to fight forced labor, the best approach is to focus on one product at a time and to learn how the supply chain works, what's causing forced labor in that issue, and what the solutions are that are being proposed. Then it's sort of your job to become an advocate on that issue, right? So if we're going back to our sugar episode, it could mean handing out copies of Sweetness and Power or whatever that the product is that you choose, you can then having that knowledge sort of share strategies and that's going to be coming from a more informed place. Sure, that sounds great, but it also sounds exhausting. It does. Yeah. So that's why he recommends picking just one thing and that can sort of be like your issue that you advocate on. That's what we chose to do for the challenge for this episode, but I'm also going to talk about a different way that you can use your voice that I think might be more effective because ultimately if we're trying to fight forced labor, I think the solutions for that are going to have to come from governments of some kind. So my suggestion would be instead learn about forced labor, listen to part one and uh, <laughs> use your voice to promote human rights. So I'll, I'll talk about a couple of ways that you can do that. The first one is that you can tell your government representative that you care about ratifying the International Labor Organization's Protocol on Forced Labor. The Protocol on Forced Labor, it's an international treaty that has not gone into effect yet because it needs 50 countries to sign on, and currently only 45 countries have done so. So they need five more countries to finally ratify. If it was ratified, the protocol on forced labor would require governments to take new measures to address forced labor. That would include things like countries would need to increase their inspections to protect workers, and they would also need to guarantee victims access to justice and compensation. So it's a good thing that you want to have ratified. We want this to become an international law. So why, why, why have countries not signed on to this? I don't know. <laughs> I, I imagine because it would impose costs and things like that. But uh, Canada has already ratified. So if you're Canadian, this particular form of activism on forced labor isn't speaking to you. Uh, but the United States and Australia both have not ratified the protocol yet. So oh, and we have listeners from both of those countries. So yeah. email your MPs. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. So yell at yell at your representative about ratifying the protocol on forced labor. Kristen's slogan at this point. <laughs> yell at your MP. <laughs> but don't worry, if you're Canadian, there is still something to yell at your MP about. So <laughs> <laughs> Oh, thank goodness. I was worried, Kristen. <laughs> My MP misses me. <laughs> Yeah, um, Canada actually, it turns out, is a huge laggard on modern slavery legislation, so boo hiss us. Essentially, in the last five years, there have been a bunch of countries that have started to put into place modern slavery acts. The United Kingdom was sort of the, the first country to do this. They did it in 2015. Their law kind of sucks, but it was the first, so we'll give them some credit on it. <laughs> So you can tell your member of parliament that you want Canada to pass the Modern Slavery Act that has been introduced by the Senate in February this year. So it is very fresh. It is in our legislative process right now. So you can really have an impact. So the Modern Slavery Act, it basically would create an obligation for companies to report, in our case, to the Ministry of Public Safety and Emergency Preparedness. In other laws, it's to different ministers. Um, and basically, companies would have to report on steps taken to prevent and reduce the risk of forced or child labor in any step of their production process. So for companies that are eligible, they'd basically have to put out a report every year saying, this is what we've done to address forced labor. Here are where our risks are. Here's where we're trying to reduce them. And they'd have to make that publicly available so that you and I can look on the website of the company and say, hmm, that's a really detailed set of steps I buy that this company's trying versus like the more vague ones might not seem as efficient. So would every company have to do that or? Usually there are size limits. I'm not sure exactly what the demarcation line is for Canada, but typically it's either based on like number of employees or profits or something like that. Okay, sure. Yeah. So in, in France, actually, they... Their legislation is in some way better than ours, but they also have legislated most companies out of it. Apparently, only like 150 companies are going to actually have to comply with the legislation there. So, so it's not actually very useful. <laughs> no. Yeah. And I mean, this might sort of seem like one of those things where it doesn't matter. You know, it's like, oh, what's reducing another report? But... These kinds of things are actually really valuable for activists, because if you get an expert that actually knows how dealing with forced labor should work, they can look at these different company reports and get a lot of information out of it. And so they can actually meaningfully tell consumers, based on these reports, this company is doing really well, this company is not doing very well. Yeah, and the more companies that have to report on it, then they'll see other companies doing it, consumers can make more informed decisions. Maybe they'll lose some business. Maybe they'll improve their reporting and the decisions that they're making in the supply chain. So, yeah. And there are actually a couple of countries that have also implemented like substantive requirements. Um, so in addition to having to report, you also have to take certain due diligence steps, like steps to make sure that you don't have forced labor in your supply chain, which maybe could be a thing that one might include in a letter to a Canadian member of parliament. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so those are the strategies, I think. You have to either find, find leading brands that are actually trying on forced labor and patronize them instead of the laggard brands. You can also try fair trade where you can for things like tea and coffee. They're available with fair trade a lot of the time. 
Uh, you can then also use your voice to promote human rights as much as you can, whether that is for international treaties or whether that is for governments passing legislation they put, should have passed a long time ago, or whether it's telling a company that you think they should do better. Use your voice. You want to talk about our challenge, though? Yeah, actually, that leads into the challenges really well, because what I learned from my challenge is uh, another thing you can do is don't buy cheap plastic crap that's going to pollute the planet and is almost guaranteed to have been made by forced labor. <laughs> Ooh, what, what was the product you chose for your challenge? I don't know. I was worried that we might choose the same thing because I looked at the list and I was immediately like, oh, that's interesting. Um, <laughs> so I chose Christmas lights. Ooh, that's fun. I did not pick Christmas lights. You're good. What a specific thing to be worried about. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. Well, it was uh, like the list has, it's, it's like bovine and like coffee. And so when I saw Christmas lights, I was like, that's really specific. So I was like, okay, cool. China has forced labor making Christmas lights. Let's Google that real quick. And yeah, it's a bit of a doozy. So <laughs> I decided to talk about that. But what, 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 uh, what's yours? What did you choose? Uh, I chose rice. I went very much the other way and chose a basic. <laughs> nice. That's perfect. Because I was really worried that you would also see Christmas lights and be like, what? <laughs> I almost, I saw one for like, it was like glittered shirts or something similar to that. And I was like, what the fuck is this? I must choose it. <laughs> but I, I went with rice instead. Okay. Let me tell you a little bit about the forced labor in Chinese prisons that are making... Um, if you've bought Christmas lights in the last few years, there's a very, very good chance that they were made in uh, Chinese prisons from forced labor because they are uh, exported to the United States and Canada and North America in general um, a lot. And I saw some stats that were just like, yeah, basically everything that you buy from Christmas lights is coming from here. So, um, and it's not even... I was like, oh, forced labor in China, you know, Uyghur population. And I was like, nope, not even that. Wait, you're, you're talking about forced labor in China and it wasn't the Uyghur? Nope. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I'm fascinating to hear what it is now and also very depressed. Yeah, yeah, honestly. <laughs> well, and if people want to hear more about the Uyghurs and be super, super duper sad, John Oliver just recently did an amazing episode on it, actually. So check him out. I've uh, got a Big old crush on him, so happy to promote. Okay, so to tell you guys about this, I'm literally just going to quote from an, a really well done article from The Independent that talks about it really well. So here we go. On the other hand, failure to work hard enough would result in immediate punishment. This ranged from denial of food to being manacled by your hands and legs to the floor for hours or days on end. Reports from other prison labor camps have revealed that those who refuse to work altogether are often placed in hanging cuffs, where the inmate is handcuffed and left to dangle by the wrists from the iron bars of a window until they submit. Foster recalls, this is a, an inmate that they spoke to, he recalls that at times whippings were so commonplace that the cell floor would be stained with the blood of inmates. They whipped people with the Christmas light cords, he remembers. I don't want to ruin people's Christmas, but if you pick up a fairy light cord, chances are it could have been used to beat someone. Fuck. Yeah, yeah, it's real dark. So are these um are these state-run prison camps then, or...? You know what? I think it's complicated, actually. I really... So I'm going to link to this article. It's really long, and it's really thorough. But it's complicated because I think... Did I um quote this, actually? 
Yeah. So here's the next part of this um this article that I so I took chunks of it because it's really long, but I took the parts that I thought were most relevant. So I'll read the whole thing, and then if you have any other questions, I can I can see because I I did a little bit of further googling, um, <laughs> but it's real. It's just grim. So here's the next part. When Xi Jinping became president, did I say that right? Actually, I mean I'm sure that that is as close as I know how to pronounce it. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, I should know the name of the president of the People's Republic of China, but that's okay. No, no, I just mean I just mean like I feel like Chinese is such like a it, because it's such a tonal language, like there's no way that somebody that doesn't know it is saying it right. So, I think you're saying it as closely as I would or any other anglophone person would, but Okay. Well, as long as it's the way Christian would say it, then it's good enough <laughs> for me. <laughs> So when he became president of the People's Republic of China back in 2013, there was widespread hope that he would be a reformer and perhaps even abolish forced labor for good. However, many suspect that instead forced labor in prison and detention facilities has actually become far more prevalent under his leadership. There's several reasons for this, explains Chen Guangcheng, a Chinese civil rights activist who was imprisoned for four years in various detention centers from 2006 to 2010. Inequalities in Chinese society are becoming more and more serious, so crime is on the rise, and every year more and more people are going to jail. And in addition, the number of people who have had their freedom taken away from them and been placed in black jails, detention centers, or house arrest has increased a lot. You can see this in many places. The detention center near where I lived originally held 80 people, now it holds more than a 1,000. So of course, more and more people are being subject to forced labor. So then the article goes on, you know, I skipped a bit of stuff, um, but here's the next part I found interesting. Uh, many prisons and detention centers operate almost identically to genuine businesses. Some even have their own full-time sales teams comprised of prison staff who spend their time continually pitching to factories across China and sourcing new work. Uh, Guangcheng points out that this is actively encouraged by the Chinese government who deliberately withhold funding from prisons and detention centers to force them to be self-sustainable using prisoners to generate enough revenue to cover the prison's costs. So, yeah, they're state-run, <laughs> but <laughs> where the money comes from, is it, it gets complicated. Yeah, for sure. So then the article goes on. Such is the focus on daily and monthly quotas that as an incentive in some prisons, sentences can even be reduced for good work, but most commonly, they are extended for perceived underperformance. If you do your work well in a given month, then you'll get one point, which means you have four days taken off your overall sentence, Guangcheng says. But if you haven't met your target, which is more common, then you get points deducted deducted in sentences extended. Um, and then the last little bit here that I that I have to quote is just... um. The fact that this still persists is largely due to the complexity and costs of doing full due diligence on Chinese suppliers. A lot of brands pass on their orders to third-party factories, unaware that these factories then outsource all of their production to prison labor camps, says uh, Li Kuang. Um, again, I'm so sorry if I'm saying that wrong. Head, head of activist group China Labor Watch. To actually find out whether this is going on or not would require a lot of costly work auditing these various factories, uh, auditing these various factories in person and trying to actively seek whether their goods are being manufactured in prisons. And at the end of the day, the brands only really care more about whether the orders are produced on time, not how they're being made. So 
Yes, there are, I mean, there are stories of prisoners smuggling messages out in Christmas cards, Halloween decorations, and clothing. It's all happened before. Um, I'll link to an article that talks about a few of those, but I think most people have heard the stories. They, they tend to go viral when they come out and they're pretty big because it's real depressing. Um, I mean, part of our, part of our challenge was to kind of see what movements are out there that we can support that we can add our voice to but from from what i could find there's not really a lot being done about this i guess people don't care so much about forced labor in prisons uh, uh, ngos are calling for big brands to stop sourcing from the region of china where the uyghur population is being exploited but i couldn't find anything specific about the general prison system maybe it's out there but it's tough to google which means that it's probably not super big um, in this case, I guess people should untangle last year's lights instead of getting frustrated and just buying new ones. <laughs> I don't know. Or do as I do and be too lazy for decorations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that was my challenge. Uh, pretty underwhelming and really depressing. Yeah, I mean, I think it it does raise a really interesting question, though, because... So, in general terms, forced labor today is mostly not about state actors. It's mostly like private businesses exploiting people. But in the case of, I mean, there there is still state-imposed um, forced labor elsewhere. But China, I feel like it's increasingly an area where that's a problem. And it's also a huge part of the global market. So, I, I don't know. I think we really need to reckon with what do you do about that, you know? <laughs> At what point should sanctions be applied? Yeah, and well, I mean, that's why I that's why I texted you what yesterday and I was like, "Yo, I have no solutions and also we could do a whole episode on this thing I chose." <laughs> like, what the fuck is going on here? Holy shit, China. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah, that's dark, Kyla, but <laughs> Yeah, here here comes rice. I hope it's a lighthearted one. Oh, gosh, no, um, it is not. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I chose rice, as I mentioned. And according to the U.S. Department of Labor, there is forced labor in rice production that occurs in three different countries. So Burma, India and Mali. And then there was also child labor in a few other countries. But I chose not to look into those just for the purposes of our podcast, because we'll do another episode on child labor, even though. For sure, child labor is terrible, and the sort of the causes of forced and child labor have to be linked in some sense, I'd imagine. But anyway, what I found was interesting about rice is that actually the causes of forced labor in the three different countries where it happens are totally different. Oh, really? Yeah, they're completely different, and in a certain way, they highlight almost like the three archetypes of what forced what kinds of forced labor happen in global commodity chains and how they work. So I accidentally stumbled on a really good example, I think. So the, the first country where forced labor is documented to happen in rice production is India. And in India, forced labor in rice is a story of debt bondage. So it's sort of your very common form of forced labor that happens in like 2020 society, basically private owners that 
force vulnerable workers to work based on debts that they've incurred or that their families have incurred. And in India, it's been a pretty big problem. There was a major operation against a rice mill that happened in 2007. And actually, the owner of the rice mill was just convicted of um, under India's bonded labor system in 2018. So that was a really big story at the time. Then there was another story from 2019 where there was a pregnant woman named Sonia who was working in debt bondage at a rice mill, and she actually lost her baby because of the harsh working conditions there, which is apparently not super uncommon for bonded labor, um, but it's still very sad. So even though debt bondage is illegal in India, as it is in most places, in India's 2011 census, the country identified more than 135,000 bonded workers. And that's just from like a government census. So the government's like, oh, we know you're there. We know it's illegal, but we're not going to do anything about it. Yeah, no, fucking no. It's messed up, right? Um, <laughs> but yeah, the, the real figure is actually, of course, a lot higher. So an NGO that's working in this area called International Justice Mis Mission they identified 500,000 bonded laborers just in one state. So that was the state of Tamil Nadu. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. You were there. Do you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'd think I would know. I've been to India. I spent some time there, but I never went to that state. And I don't remember looking into going there. So <laughs> sorry, we can both be terrible and say things wrong. Uh uh, apologies if, if we're mispronouncing things. Not our intention. The next one is uh, Burma. And in the Burmese case, it's an example of state-imposed forced labor. So similar to your Christmas lights example, um, although it seems to be a little bit... Rather than being sort of straight-up prison camps in uh, Myanmar, it's um, sort of soldiers forcing labor in a in a way that sort of like the government can pretend that they don't see you know oh sure uh, yeah um i mean burma burma very imperfectly transitioned to a kind of democracy recently so they did for many years have a quite a, a wide tradition of state-imposed forced labor in sort of the same bent as um the, the Chinese prison labor or the North Korean overseas workers program that we talked about in part one. But in today's sort of context, Burma is notionally a democracy, but it's also one that's in a very real sense carrying out a genocide against um, its Rohingya Muslim population. And so in that context, you have forced labor happening um, where essentially soldiers are forcing Rohingya Muslims to work either for no pay or for very low pay. And rice is one of the industries where that's happening. There are accounts of up to 8,000 Rohingya Muslims being forced into hard labor by soldiers. So India, bonded labor, private companies sort of like taking advantage of debt. In Myanmar, it's state-imposed forced labor. Mali... Totally different story again. And in, in the case of Mali, it's actually like your straight up descendant based slavery, which is um, horrifying. So I looked into this a little bit. I'm not going to have as much historical context as probably I should have to cover this topic. 
But in essence, it looks like for Mali, forced labor in rice production is happening mostly because members of a group called either the Bella or the Ikalan a community in northern Mali, um, they're being enslaved by Tuareg communities. So Tuareg society is, it's basically an ethnically casted society and it has five tiers. This is at least as I understand it from one academic article I read. And so three of those tiers are racially perceived as white, according to the author, and the lowest two tiers are racially perceived as black. Um, and one of those tiers is free, but the other one is an unfree cast of slaves. And so the like Bella community are part of that unfree cast. So it's like traditional colonial slavery going on over there? Yeah, it's a traditional caste system that predated colonialism, but colonialism definitely sort of reinforced the hierarchical pyramid and like strengthened the the racial connotations within it. How how is that still happening right now? <laughs> <laughs> she shrugs. Yeah. Yeah, I that's bonkers. Yeah, so Mali is one of three countries in Western Africa where a group called Anti-Slavery International has undertaken initiatives to address descent-based slavery. So it's not the only place where descent-based slavery happens. Um, but I think the other two were the other two that Anti-Slavery International is working with in Western Africa anyway, were uh, Niger and Mauritania. Um, and yeah, in both of those cases as well, Descendant-based slavery is very much wrapped up in these sort of older social institutions, right? So in this case, you have people that are literally born unfree. Um, they're born owned by the upper castes, and they produce work for them as a result of that unpaid. In some cases, the children are born free, but then they get into a bonded debt situation because they're children of slaves, who have no way of making money because they're owned, so they're objects. And so it's um, even in the cases where children aren't specifically born as slaves, it results in forced labor as well. So yeah, it's pretty fucked up. And in all three of those cases, there are some NGOs working to address the situation. Actually, with the Myanmar case, I couldn't find all that much on it. Um, but I would Imagine that any group that's working to combat the the genocide against the Rohingya Muslim the Rohingya Muslim population um, would sort of also be dealing with forced labor. So you could sort of look at that if you're interested. Yeah, three different kinds of slavery, really fucked up. Cool, 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 cool. cool. Yeah, cool. just cool. yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe we should have started with the challenges. <laughs> yeah, usually the challenges are like our moment of levity, but in this case, it's just a real downer. Well, is that it? <laughs> I really feel like I should give a more hopeful ending, but like, you know, forced labor sucks. Well, I mean, we've given we've given we've given some ways that people can can act to who try and uh, help the problem. I think consumers don't realize how much power they do have sometimes. So it's just important to keep reminding yourself that, hey, it does matter that you, you know, maybe find a different way to decorate your house this year than buying new Christmas lights, or maybe look for rice that's been produced in a different region, right? Little, little things. I'm getting better at it. It's tricky because it's hard to think about every purchase. Sometimes you just want to be on autopilot. You go to the grocery store, you get something that's got a nice package, and then you go. 
Um, but the more you look at, like, you look into something once, you figure out what's good, and then you can go on autopilot and just get that brand, right? Yeah, there, there are some ways to definitely look into your individual purchases. But I think in the case of forced labor, it's also, to be honest, these things have political solutions, all three of them, you know, if you're talking about these, like, um, old style descent based slavery systems, like ultimately that needs to be made illegal and dealt with aggressively in the law. Otherwise, all that ends up happening, even if you sort of we have strong consumer pressure, is that these kind of descent based slave systems move to different kinds of work, right? Like domestic work, things like that. You can't solve that al- with consumer pressure alone. You need there to be a political solution. State imposed forced labor, like. Yeah, I don't know what we do when authoritarian countries are just treating their citizens as units of production that have no rights. Um, That's really complicated, but I mean, I think that has to ultimately be something we reckon with as a society, particularly as China sort of flexes its muscle increasingly. And then, I mean, the one situation where, you know, debt bondage... Yeah, that's profit driven. We can create a a fairer system, you know? It's going to need us to actually create, we're going to need to actually create a fairer economy to ultimately solve it. But taking away the profit motive to um, exploit people who are in debt, like, that's the thing we can do that's, that's practical and we can really make a dent in forced labor, I think. So, yeah, that's true. Well, and also addressing climate change would help with some of this stuff (laughs) because addressing climate change (laughs) inherently involves addressing inequality (laughs) and our (laughs) overconsumption of goods. So (laughs) it all ties together. Ah, it all eventually comes around to eat less meat. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, that's a little bit of a lighter note to end things on. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll catch you on the next one. You can always uh, tweet at us if we pronounced anything so badly that you feel it's necessary (laughs) to call us out publicly. We are at Pullback Podcast on Twitter. And we'll see you soon. We won't see you. I'm tired. You will hear us soon on the next episode. (laughs) Well, that's enough. Is our next episode a little bit uh, a little bit more uplifting, Kristen? Fuck, I don't remember what our next episode is. Let's see. Yeah, me yeah. neither. I'm going to say it is so that people come back and listen again. <laughs> I know we've got a Halloween episode coming up. I don't think that's the next one, but it's not October yet, is it? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the passage of time.